Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This month on Decompliance Life, I visit with Maria Devonzo. Maria is currently the chief product evangelist at Treliant. Maria has sat in the CCO chair at Cushman and Wakefield, the international real estate company. And in this podcast series, she details how she moved from a small business-oriented law practice into the field of compliance and into the CCO chair and now her role at Treliant. I know you'll enjoy this month's guest on the Compliance Life, Maria Navanzo. In part one, academic background and early professional career. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to another edition of The Compliance Life. This month, we're featuring Maria Davanzo. She is the Chief Evangelist Officer at Treliant, and she has a fascinating journey to and now from the CCO chair. So, Maria, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. Maria, could we start off with you telling us your academic background and your early professional Yeah, sure. Before we get to that, if it's okay, I just wanted to point out that the overarching theme of my story and my personal mantra to this day is no challenge, no change. And that's what you'll find throughout my story. And as we go through, we'll talk about some of the takeaways I have from my career. My my undergraduate career started at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I graduated with a political science major and a philosophy minor. I always had an interest in attending law school. A close family friend was a successful trial lawyer in New York. And during high school, I spent some time working for him as a gopher. I'd go for coffee, go for lunch, go to the bank. And I decided I wanted to go to law school and pursue a career in litigation. So I started law school at St. John's University in Jamaica in Queens in New York. And as with the rest of my legal career, as you'll hear, I took a slightly different approach than most folks. I started school in the February semester and attended class during both summers so that I could finish law school with the rest of the September class. There were about 50 or so of us, and we were known as the Feds. After graduating Holy Cross and before starting law school, though, I worked at a small sports company called Baseball Photophile. They sold photos of players and professional boxers, some of which were autographed, and I did a little bit of everything there. It was very fun and interesting, and the highlight of that time was when I answered the phone and actually found myself speaking with Yogi Berra's wife, Carmen. 
So that was a fun opportunity. During law school, I lived at home with my parents in northern Westchester and commuted an hour each way to Queens. And so, frankly, it felt more like a job than going to school. And although I was very interested in litigation, I found myself gravitating towards courses like contracts, UCC, secured transactions, more of the commercial law stuff. And honestly, torts and civil procedure were not my strong suit at all. And looking back, my interest in the more corporate areas of the law may actually explain why I find myself in more of a business role. First of all, you have a double first here. You're our first guest from the College of the Holy Cross. And second of all, you're our first guest from St. John's Law School. So congratulations on both. (laughs) So what was your early professional career like? Yeah, so my early professional career was actually very interesting, and I found myself in a fortunate situation. I started career, my career at a boutique litigation shop in White Plains. That firm was lead trial and national coordinating counsel for IBM in a mass tort litigation involving the repetitive stress injury claims. We called it the RSI litigation. And I consider myself fortunate because from the start, I was able to draft pleadings, motion papers, argue motions participate in a meaningful way in document collection and production, take and defend depositions. I sat second chair during a Daubert hearing in New Jersey federal court, and I sat second chair at a six-week trial, jury trial, which went to verdict in New York State Supreme Court. And I point that out because as a litigator today, that's very rare. A lot of cases don't go to trial. So I was fortunate to actually not only sit second chair early on in my career, but also take it to verdict. Given the number of lawsuits and the nature of the claims, this was a bet the company litigation for IBM. And so we were therefore very well resourced and supported. It was interesting that our co-defendants were represented by a myriad of white shoe law firms, and they took direction from our firm. And the associates working at those firms only saw the inside of a courtroom or a deposition conference room if they were carrying briefcases and taking notes. And document production was limited to bait stamping and entering privileged documents into a lock. So while I wasn't at a white shoe law firm, I was actually practicing law, which was fantastic. The experience presented me with many challenges, and I learned quite a bit during the time. But as I said, no challenge, no change. I don't know if you've ever seen my cousin Vinny, but I felt a little bit like Vincent LaGuardia Gambini in that movie, Learn As You Go. I will never forget the first time I argued a motion in Kings County. The partner gave me the file, chatted with me about the case, and then sent me on my way. We didn't discuss process or procedure at all. So I found myself getting to court, waiting for the case to be called. I was the moving party, so I spoke first. I made what I thought was a very compelling argument. Unfortunately, I did it while sitting in the chair. And I didn't realize my mistake, of course, until plaintiff's counsel stood up before he made his argument. Everybody was very gracious, including the judge, thankfully. But I was certainly very embarrassed and never made that mistake again. My experience as a litigator working on high profile and significant issues taught me organizational skills, the ability to multitask, how to conduct legal research and write well. I learned how to deliver persuasive oral arguments. I learned how to analyze and solve problems. And I have to tell you, as a compliance officer later in my career, all of these skills served me very well. In fact, I later discovered that preparing for and taking a deposition was probably the best training I could have had with respect to how to conduct and invest. We defeated the RSI litigation. And so after that, I moved on to a small insurance defense firm, also in White Plains, but ultimately left there for, for lifestyle, personal reasons. My husband and I started a small law practice focusing on real estate and small business transactions. And it was truly a country practice. Our office was in a historic district uh, in our hometown. We had a working fireplace in our conference room, and we'd often bring our beagle to the office. Our son spent so much time there in his formative years, 
that while he would talk on his play, his toy cell phone, he would often shush us and tell us he was on the phone with a client if we tried to talk to him. Having my own practice presented me with different challenges and learning opportunities. I pivoted from dealing with highly sophisticated corporate clients like IBM to learning how to actively listen and communicate with smaller enterprises, most of whom were mom and pop establishments. Their legal needs obviously were very different than IBM's, um, but really not less impactful to them. I recall many times when I took goods and services in exchange for my work. There were several mornings when I'd arrive at the office to find that the bagel store client had left me a few dozen warm bagels at my doorstep and the pizza guy for whom I'd reviewed partnership agreements and leases provided lunch. It wasn't the typical legal path, but it certainly afforded me the opportunity to help some folks who might not otherwise have had access to legal services. I saved tenants from eviction. I helped elderly clients with estate planning, including making difficult decisions around whether to disinherit children who didn't treat them very well. The experience that touched me the most, though, was the time I helped a woman retain custody of her young son in a very ugly custody battle. So as you can see, it's been it was a very varied early, early career where I learned lots and lots of lessons. And I really I want to change any of it for the world. So I have to ask about the standing up. Uh, Fortunately, (laughs) I learned that I think the second week I was in practice and typically in in the county I practice in Texas, the judge would simply say, I can't hear you. And usually by the third time, somebody told the lawyer to stand up. But yes, of all the things to be mortified of, I completely get it. But you said a couple of other things I have to follow up on. You're now the second person in almost 5,000 podcasts who has said the words bait stamp. And I can't tell you how many documents I sat with bait stamper stamping pages and hoping I didn't miss a page. It sounds documents. But you also mentioned the Dobear hearing, or I would call it Dobear. And I'm fascinated by that because for me, that was one of the most difficult hearings because I felt very constrained by the evidence I could present. And sometimes it was a highly technical argument about the expert. And I wanted to follow up a little bit on that. And how was a Dobear hearing different for you than perhaps other motion hearings or non-trial times you had to present something to a court? Yeah, that's a really great question. First of all, obviously, there were a team of us, and I was a member of that team. But you're right, very technical, obviously science-based. And so you need to be prepared, which ironically is one of the, not ironically, but what is one of the key takeaways from my career, preparation, reading the journals, reading the, the test results, reading the literature in order to be able to question the the expert that you're going to be putting on the stand. And the skills surrounding that are similar in trials and similar in other types of motions. But because of the subject matter of the of the journals and that it's very scientific, you have to be able to learn a different area. And science, you have to be able to understand those types of journals. I'd say it was different because the type of preparation that we had to do. You also mentioned a couple of different matters you had in the transactional realm, although perhaps a maybe family law or estate planning. And you mentioned having to either represent clients or work with a client who may have wanted to disinherit a child. And then you mentioned the custody battle. And there I wanted to ask you a little bit about how did you deal with the sort of the emotional toughness 
of those type cases. Did you do what many lawyers do? And we just put our lawyer face on and we go into that mode. Did you learn empathy or did you have to use empathy on either one of those situations? Yeah, very good question. Yes, absolutely. You have to use empathy. I did not go the route, the prior route and putting my lawyer face on. That's just not who I am. I became empathetic to their situation and tried to imagine how it might feel, especially with the second example. As I mentioned, I have a son. And so thought of that woman being in a situation in which her relationship with her child would be in jeopardy, that hit me, that pulled on my heartstrings, absolutely. And it was difficult. I'm not going to kid you. It was very difficult to do that. And you bring that home and you try not to let it impact your life, but it does. And so what you do is you hug your child a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter that day. So that's, that's how I work through those challenging emotional issues. And it also seems to me that maybe now that you're looking back and with a little bit of retrospectiveness, or as we look at your early career, you were really learning the soft skills that you would employ later in your corporate world or corporate life as you moved into the CCO chair. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely a fair assessment, especially working at, at in my own law practice with, with you know, as I called them, mom and pop, right? The local community, the neighbors, the folks, regular folks on the front line, not C-suite corporate executives. And that came in very handy as CCO at Cushman and Wakefield because with 26,000 employees initially, and then when we merged and went public, we had 58,000. Really, you're dealing with the people that work there day to day for the most part. And yes, you have to be able to know how to relate to them. And I did draw upon the skills that I learned when I was sitting in that small country law practice, talking with just regular folks and dealing with them on how to solve problems. I used those same skills later on when I was working with our employees at Cushman on various compliance related and ethics ethics issues. Let me pick up on one other skill you said you picked up and it was in preparing for and then either taking or defending depositions. And you said that really helped you later when you had to move to more of an investigative realm. And I asked that because my experience was 180 degrees different. I had to de-learn everything I'd learned about depositions when I moved into investigative world. So how were you able to, or what skills did you develop in either preparing for defending or taking a deposition that you were able to take with you and expand upon when you move towards internal investigations? Certainly, again, preparation, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but for me, it's all about preparation. So I would look at whatever materials were available to me with regard to a particular individual that I was going to take a deposition of before I took that deposition. And that would help me focus my questions. What issues did I want to cover? What was important to that particular case? What wasn't important to the case? What types of questions did I want to ask? What did I want to tease out and learn from this particular individual when I was talking with them, when I was asking them questions during the deposition? And those are the same things I did in the context of an investigation. I wanted to know what the issues were that I, that were important to the particular misconduct or alleged misconduct that was at hand. I understand the approach, the way you ask questions in a deposition was certainly different than how I asked the questions in the investigation because it's a different type of relationship, but certainly the preparation and the issue spotting was was a skill for me that I used during the course of my investigations. Maria, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we discuss your move into the world of compliance. I look forward to continuing our discussion. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. 
I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. In The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.